Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All right, so we had our introduction, set up the stage for martyrdom, looking at our witness to the faith, the need for the virtue of fortitude. Now, how is one way that we need to be that witness of faith? And one way is by teaching and defending our faith to others. So let's look at another great martyr, and this is St. Edmund Campion. He was born in 1540, dies in 1581. He was born in London, raised a Catholic, but of course at this time everything is in turmoil because Henry VIII separates himself from the church, his son Edward VI does worse, then we have a little interregnum with Queen Mary, sort of tries to bring things back to Catholicism, and then there comes Elizabeth I. So England is in turmoil, Edmund loses his faith, he becomes part of the Church of England, he's going to Oxford. So now we're at about 1564, he's an Oxford scholar, he's even a deacon in the Anglican Church. For some reason, he even has the liking of Queen Elizabeth. So I was one of little, her dandies, I guess you could say. But as he's at Oxford, he begins studying the church fathers. So St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Ignatius, and so on. And he recognizes that everything that the Catholic Church teaches is true. It's what they've always believed. What we've always believed as Christians, that all this stuff, in the Articles of Faith of the Church of England and so on that denies what the Catholic Church teaches, all of that is wrong. So he flees England. So Elizabeth is not real happy about that, even tries to prevent him, but he leaves England when he's 40 years old, or a little bit earlier than that, and he goes to Douai, France, and there, it is earlier than that, but anyway, he goes to Douai, France. There is a seminary set up there for the English. And the idea was to prepare Jesuits to go back to England secretively and minister to the faithful Catholics. So by this time, there's like almost an underground church that's existing. And priests could go back and oftentimes in the nobles' homes that were still faithful to England, they would have secret chapels. They even had what were called hiding places or hidey holes, where priest holes, where priests could be kept secretively. The wealthy could do this because they could afford to pay the fines, and the king or queen liked that because then they received extra revenue. So if you were nobility, sometimes they looked the other way, and so on. But anyway. When he's 40 years old, he returns back to England, and he begins this missionary work. One of his home bases is Stoner Place, 
which today is still run by Lord Stoner. It's the family house. They've always been faithful to the church. One can go there, and I have, and go up inside the attic area where there's a secret room where St. Edmund stayed, but also where he had a little printing press. And on this little printing press, he wrote several things. One was the Decem Rationes, Ten Reasons for Believing. And then he also wrote these little pamphlets simply called the Brag. So with the printing press, he was able to disseminate this literature and renew the faith of so many people. He was able to show this is what the Anglican Church teaches, but this is what the Catholic Church teaches and why. Brought about many converts. Because of this, Queen Elizabeth I sends out her like top secret, you could say spy kind of guy, FBI head, whatever we want to call him, named Walsingham, to find Edmund Campion and stop him. Somehow he's betrayed, and they find him at Lyford House. Literally, they take the house almost apart piece by piece to find him, and eventually they discover where he's hiding. They take him to the Tower of London. He's racked three times. So you can imagine being put on this awful instrument of torture, being just stretched. Three times because during each of those times as he's being racked, you have these Anglican prelates who are questioning him about the faith and debating the faith. And he, with great fortitude, talk about the virtue of meekness, is able to calmly refute their arguments. They can't win. Well, during this time, he's also, in between sessions, kept in this another little place of torture called the Little Ease, which was in like the basement of the Tower of London, which was a four-by-four cell in the dark. Well, if it's a four-by-four cell, a cube, basically, you can't stand, you can't stretch out. So you've just been put on the rack, and now you're thrown into this little pit place. So they're doing everything they can to break this man's spirit. So again, three times he's on the rack, three times he's being interrogated, questioned by these Anglican prelates. And there is a man, he's a nobleman, Lord Philip Howard, who is observing all of this. Eventually, because they cannot break him, he's sentenced to be hung, drawn, and quartered. So that was the worst punishment for what was treason. Treason because Elizabeth first said, well, if you aren't going to recognize me as the head of the church, you are a traitor. And all Catholic priests are traitors. So if you're a Catholic priest, and you enter England without permission, which you'd have to, and you offer mass, or administer the other sacraments, you're immediately doing an act of treason. And hung, drawn, and quartered meant that you were hung till you were unconscious, taken down, disemboweled, and they emasculated you too. You're still conscious. And then they cut you into four pieces. Put your head on a pike near the Tower of London, and there you have it. If you go to London near the Marble Arch, now it's this crazy traffic circle, but there's actually a spot that marks Tyburn Hill where these executions took place. And not too far away is a convent of the Good Shepherd where I believe it's the Good Shepherd, where they have many of the relics of the martyrs preserved. The sisters have, they're cloistered, do perpetual adoration. 
But anyway, be that as it may, as Edmund Campion was being hung, drawn, and quartered, and he's being disemboweled, some of the blood from him hit the eyes of another person named Henry Walpole. Well, I mention this because Lord Philip Howard converted to the faith because he witnessed Edmund Campion being racked and he heard the testimony and it was reasonable, it made sense, and he converted. He tried to flee England and Elizabeth caught him and locked him in the Tower of London. Again, if you go to the Tower of London, there's a tower, like one of the turret kind of towers, called Beecham Tower. It looks like Beauchamp when it's spelled out, but it's, they call it Beecham. And that's where Philip Howard stayed for the rest of his life. Some say that he was poisoned by orders of Elizabeth I. Being a lord, though, she was scared to have a public ex execution. But on the wall, you'll see his name written. He actually etched his name on the wall of the tower. Henry Walpole becomes a Jesuit priest. He flees England. Remember, he's the one that had the blood of Edmund Campion hit his eyes. He flees England, and then he comes back. He's kept in the Tower of London. Eventually, he's executed, but you can see his name written in what's called the Salt Tower, another one of these turret kinds of towers. Another Jesuit, John Gerard, who was arrested, imprisoned, but escaped, said, though, it was a great comfort to me to find myself in a place sanctified by this great and holy martyr. Now, why do I bring up Edmund Campion? Because, my brothers and sisters, we have to be a witness of the faith who teaches truth in our world today. That's one of the great witnesses we can do. We live in a world, as Pope Benedict said, there's the dictatorship of relativism. It's like, do whatever you want to do. And when we lose truth, whoever's in power is going to decide what we believe and how we're going to live. They will say, this is what the government says, this is what you must believe. It's very Orwellian. But we're called to proclaim the truth. So martyrs profess truth. Now, we, this is not an easy challenge for us. Let's look at some statistics, because it shows us the, the gravity of the situation. Back in 1948, so after, right after World War II, it is reported that 91% of Americans identified themselves as Christians. In, in 2013, that's down to 68%. Belief in God has dropped 15% in the past five years. We're talking about atheists now. Belief in God has dropped 15% in five years. Americans claiming no, no religious affiliation increased 8% in 1990, 20% in 2013. 20% who were raised in a religion now have no affiliation at all. 75% of teens identify themselves as Christians, but only 50% consider faith important. We're losing our young people. 70% of young people leave church by age 22. If we look at our Catholic church, back in 1960, depending upon your diocese, 
the mass attendance rate, so weekly mass attendance rate, was 75 to 90 percent. Now, depending upon your diocese, it's 30 percent to 10 percent. So some of the dioceses, especially those that were racked by the scandals in, around the year 2000, like Boston, 10 percent. Talk about praying for priests that they don't get discouraged, but that's what it is. 18 to 26 years of age group that we have 18% attend weekly mass, 36% monthly, 67% occasionally, and 33% rarely or never. We're talking about the Holy Eucharist. This is the core of our faith. And our young people, again, you're looking at 67% just occasionally, and then that drops down of that, 33% rarely or never. Pitiful. We have 22 million ex-Catholics in the United States, or about one-third. Now, if we were a bank and we're talking about mortgages, we'd be really concerned that we have a failure rate where one-third do not pay up on their loans. But we're looking at a church here, and we ought to be concerned that something is wrong. So you and I have to take to heart this idea of being a witness to the truths of our faith in a compelling way, so a way with enthusiasm. Matthew Kelly wrote a really good book. It's called The Four Signs of a Dynamic Catholic. If you don't have it, you ought to get it. And anything I would say, I've read three of his books now, they're all good, and they're just basic, good, you could say like motivating kinds of books for any regular kind of Catholic. But he did a study and put many studies together and he said that when you look at a parish 6.4 percent of registered parishioners contribute 80 percent of the volunteer hours in a parish. Now something's wrong with that statistic. So you could say really about 7 percent are doing 80 percent of the work in a parish. And then he said 6.8% of registered parishioners donate 80% of financial contributions. So again, you think 7% are doing 80% of the financing of a parish life. Then he said that there's an 84% overlap. So it seems to be that you've really got this one group of very committed Catholics. What about the other 92% or 93%? We well, think about it. What about the other 93% who are responsible for just 20% of the service hours, 20% of the finances? Throw in the statistics about people who maybe go to Mass on Christmas and Easter. We need to do a real evangelization here, and we need to start teaching more about our faith. Now, Michael or Matthew Kelly will continue on, and he says, well, what are the signs of these dynamic Catholics, the 7% that does so much, gives so much to the church in time, talent, treasure. He said, they spend 15 minutes praying each day. They spend 15 minutes each day reading sacred scripture or doing some other spiritual reading to learn about their faith. And then he said that they all volunteer in some way in their church, so that's all very good. And they also t were committed to some kind of evangelization, too. And that could be many ways. 
could be teaching your kids. It could be helping out in the RCIA program in a parish, whatever it is. So here's the challenge. Are you a real witness of the faith? What can you do for your parish? It's not just me. Now, that's very important. Now, me as pastor, or I as pastor, better English, I as pastor am responsible for leading my congregation and for preaching and so on, but I can't do it by myself. And I would hope all of you here, dedicated to being a witness of the faith, take some time today and think about what am I really doing to make my parish dynamic, alive. It does involve martyrdom because it means you're giving your time to prepare and teach a religious ed class. You're giving your time to help with the RCIA program. Or you're giving your money to really, in a tithing sense, to help support the mission of the church. But doesn't our Lord teach us that whatever you give, you're going to give back sevenfold? We ought to really think about this, that we need to be those effective witnesses that are committed to the mission. But before we can be committed, we have to know our faith. Now, you all being here, and some of you are very dedicated to the ICC, probably know your faith better than many Catholics do. But you think about Catholics. Most, kids, most people have an eighth grade level of religious education. And that might be in a very, from a very poor religious ed program, not even a Catholic school program. And not every Catholic school program is as good as it should be. So you and I have to remember, before we can evangelize, if we really want to be that witness, we have to know what we're talking about. And not only know it, believe it. We have to have that fervor to be able to spread the good news, that fervor to teach the faith. Part of this is to know the faith so well that we do have that self-control. Again, it's not simply, I'm a Catholic, this is what you believe. It is knowing why we believe. It's having that meekness so I can engage in a discussion with someone and present my faith with clarity, with reason, with substance, to hopefully, maybe, convince that person, or at least plant seeds to help that person come to belief. So what I encourage you to do is, first of all, looking at Matthew Kelly, is take the time and commit yourself to that 15 minutes a day of prayer. It could be saying the rosary. It's a beautiful way to meditate. It could be reading something of sacred scripture, like reading just a chapter of the Gospels or just a chapter of the New Testament. If you do, you'll get through the New Testament by the end of the year, just a chapter a day. But not just reading it, meditating on it, reflecting on it. That's how we come to an identity with Christ. The Word of God is something living. So it's not like reading Shakespeare or reading any other kind of book. It's the living Word of God. It speaks to us, and the Holy Spirit does inspire us. So I can honestly say that even like preparing homilies, and I've been a priest now almost 33 years, we have this three-year cycle and so on, well, I look at the passages 
And sometimes whole new inspirations come. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. But what it does for us, especially reading scripture, is it gives us that identity with Jesus. If we want to be the martyr, to be the witness, we have to have the identity. Jesus has to be real. He has to be part of our life. We have to know that he's that good shepherd who's walking with us, no matter what we face, whether verdant pasture, dark valley. So take that 15 minutes. Secondly, do take some time to study. The Catechism's a wonderful book. Now granted, sometimes it can get pretty heavy, without question. But there's also other ways to supplement that. There's other good books that teach the faith. But if you really did a couple of pages of the Catechism each day, you'd get through it in a year. Cardinal Lorenzo, who used to be head of the congregation that dealt with non-believers, so Buddhists, Hindus, and so on, said once at a lecture at the graduate school, he reads just two paragraphs of the catechism each day, or you know, like two little sections somehow. Well, there's a cardinal, and he knew his faith. But the idea is you always get more insights. Part of the insights are also, how do I present this to others? Of course, we need to supplement this. So we can think of the Holy Eucharist. Some of you might have the opportunity to go to daily mass. Father Vanderwitty told me that they have a chapel here that has exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. How wonderful it is to come and pray in quiet, or even just come to the church, pray before the tabernacle. And prayer doesn't have to be real complicated. St. Teresa of Avila said she always used a book when praying. There's nothing wrong with having spiritual reading. It's not as though you have to come up with something on your own. You do need to think about it, talk with our Lord, but it's, don't make it complicated. And St. Dominic said that by studying our faith, we are praying, so that's good too. But in all, if we take that 15 minutes for prayer, 15 minutes for study, we're going to have a great, greater identity with Christ and we'll be better prepared to teach, to defend, to witness to our faith. Now, one thing I would encourage you to do is simply this, and that is you know the hot topics that people ask. You know when you go to the Christmas party or the neighborhood picnic or you go to work or even the neighborhood, maybe even in your own family. Why does the church teach this? Right? Or why does the church do this? Oftentimes people don't know what the church teaches. But do you know? And can you present it? I think we really have to be almost like defense lawyers in a way, that we have to prepare ourselves. So we know one of the hot topics in our country is the right to life. Now, every political election period there is, it's always like, you know, I'm pro-choice and this person wants to take away reproductive rights and things like this and so on. Do we know how to deal with these people? And then we have some that say, mean Catholic church wants to prohibit abortion and so on, or the right to choose. Well, do we know how to deal with this? And we can do it in a rational way. So yes, we know it's true. Jesus was born, conceived in the womb of Mary, so that makes it true in itself. But do we ever say, well, look, gang, what is this? Is this a baby or is it a blob? Supreme Court, 
That's the first thing. Know the law. The law says that that unborn child is not a child. It's a fetus. It's a potential life. That is Roe versus Wade. And that child can be eliminated for any reason, really, and in the last trimester, for reasons of health, which means psychological. So if the mother doesn't want to have the child because she's burdened, she doesn't love her boyfriend anymore, whatever it may be, she can have that child terminated. So you have to know the law. Most people don't realize that. They think abortion might be, be the first two months. No, it's any time period. So then you ask the person, well, what is this? Like if you see a woman who's expecting, what do you ask her? When is your fetus due? Do you say, when's that blob of tissue going to be a baby? No? Did, the, did you see the ultrasound with the blob there? No, it's a baby. It's rational, totally rational. Any human being, a little child, can say, mommy's going to have a baby. So what's the excuse then? Someone just wants to not have it. It's a matter of want, my selfish want. I either want it or not. Or we could say, look at life, because we like science in our country. Well, conception, we know it's DNA. We're the same person. Really, all we add is food, water, hopefully love. We're the same person. So when I was conceived way back when, and I had that DNA, somehow it knew that at one point in my life I'd be six foot three and start losing my hair and whatever else it might be. DNA, and we're the same person because we're born and we grow, we go through childhood, adolescence, adulthood, those elderly years, we pass on. If it's not a person from the beginning, when is it? And be careful, because if you're going to shift the line and say, well, it's not a person until birth, well, there's a move in our country that says, well, let's wait three months after birth, because then we'll know if there's any defects or disabilities. So let's have infanticide. And when then do the insurance companies say, well, we aren't going to pay for it. So if we don't keep it from conception to natural death, we're in big trouble, because whoever's in power will decide. And then you can talk to them, you know, it's just like Nazi Germany. You play with the language. Like the Nazis used very innocuous terms. Like for us, we hear concentration camp, we have all these evil thoughts. But back then, what's a concentration camp? You put all the Jews together in a nice place. That's how they sold it. It's a concentration camp. But nobody knew what was going on in the concentration camps. And the, and the Nazis talked about, well, we'll have the Jewish question, the Jewish solution, all these innocuous terms. And so now doctors talk about reproductive choice. They refer to crushing the skull of the child in the abortion procedures finding X. We talk about products of conception, talk about a fetus and so on. We mask the language. And that's evil in itself. We mask all the language. And we don't talk about the after effects. You know, how many women do you see? Well, you'll see many women talking about having a baby. You know, I had my baby, how my baby was born and so on. Do you ever hear anyone talking about oh, I'm really glad I had an abortion. We don't. We don't hear that. If it's so good, why don't we hear it? And we don't hear about the higher suicide rates or what they call post-traumatic 
abortion syndrome. Now that's just a brief overview. I could go into greater details, but that's what you need to know. If we're going to change the culture to Christianity, we have to start with just reasonable <laughs> arguments, and they're truth-filled. And we can also then add, well, you know, Christians always believed this because in the Old Testament, life in the womb was sacred. At the time of the Roman Empire, abortion and infanticide were not uncommon. And because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of our Blessed Mother Mary, and he was born and went through childhood, adulthood, suffered, died, and rose again, life is sacred. So you start with that reason, and you have good arguments, so that when big mouth neighbor next door says, well, I'm pro-choice, what are you choosing, neighbor? Are you choosing to say, that one's a baby because you want it, and that one's not because you don't? What is it? Same thing. So have the arguments, and the Holy Spirit will provide. So that's a real challenge for us. So maybe this Lent, you take time and you think, what am I always hit with by coworkers or even family members and so on? And do some research, go to your catechism, go to straight answers even, and look up the answers. Ha prepare yourself, just like a lawyer would, just like Edmund Campion did when he was on that rack. He was able to change the faith of others. Now, I'll give you some good examples here. So, just normal stories. In my parish, there's a very kind, good man, Jerry Jumat. He died, I think, three years ago now. But Jerry Jumat was from the Philippines, but from that island where it's Muslim. So he was a convert to Catholicism. He could not even go back to that island because they would have killed him. Because the Quran says if you abandon the faith, you die. It's apostasy. But nevertheless, Jerry really embraced the Catholic faith. And as part, he helped found the Legion of Mary in our parish. And he would go every Friday night door to door evangelizing, sort of like you know, Catholic Jehovah Witnesses in a way, you know, or Catholic Mormons. So he and another Legion member would go door to door Friday nights. That's a great witness, great sacrifice. And they'd have brochures and things about the parish and all that. But in his little briefcase, he always had a Bible and a catechism. Maybe that's what you need to have when you go to work. A little Bible, a little catechism. Someone asks you a question, and you might say, well, you know, I'm not sure, but here it is. Let's look it up and go for it. A Bible and a catechism. Very saintly man. Another man in our parish who's also in the Legion, Bill Przinsky, I believe it was his son, was dating this young lady, and she had two children. But then they broke up, but that didn't matter. But Bill got to know the two kids who were right, I guess, middle school age at this point. And the two kids, because of Bill, and because of his just devoutness and what he said, they asked if they could go to church with him. So he and his wife, now they're in their early 80s, they go and pick those two kids up, and they bring them to church. And then eventually they get them to religious ed. So they go through our special sacraments class, which is like the catch-up class and so on, and Bill and his wife still 
pick up the kids. Now, the oldest one can drive, so he doesn't always have to do that. But they call him Grandpa because of that, like this filial relationship they have. But because of that man and his witness and his love for the faith, those two young girls have a tremendous faith. And they're part of our youth group. And they even give good advice to the other kids. So there's wonderful ways that you can be a witness to the faith. Sometimes it's not going to be easy, like especially for young people. And our next talk, we're going to talk about the home. But these two kids that I know, and they're both in high school now. Well, little Tyler went to Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax County. You know, very notable, you know, science, technology, all that kind of stuff. So I guess he's in his government class. And the question comes up, what do you all think about same-sex marriage? Tyler raises his hand. And he says, well, I think marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, a girl from across the room took a book and threw it at him. Guess who got in trouble? He did. Now, the girl got in trouble in the sense of you shouldn't throw books. You could hurt somebody. But he had a lecture from the principal about how you have to be tolerant. Meaning, if you want to be a Christian and speak a truth that differs from political opinion, keep your mouth shut. Well, that's not what we're called to be. But Tyler continues on. Now, another one, Isabella Grado. And hopefully, all this isn't going to get back to them. But anyway, <laughs> but um, Isabella Grado, she's in her honors Western Civ class. So this is an honors class. And I think it's one of those AP classes. So teacher says, St. Paul's the first pope. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. St. Peter's the first pope. They had a debate. Teacher had to look it up. He, he was wrong. He admitted that. And then she gets, goes on. And the Blessed Mother supposedly, no, not Blessed Mother, Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared in 1531 in Mexico City and then was canonized a saint by the church. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. That's Mary, the Blessed Mother. That's not some Our Lady of Guadalupe. That is Mary, Mother of Jesus. Fight, have to look it up. All right. And get to the Crusades. Crusades were an unjust war. Mean, awful, greedy Christians trying to drive out the Muslims. Excuse me. Excuse me. It was the Christians' land first. You know, Christians were there. They're the ones that were invaded. Hello, it was our holy land, hence holy land. But God bless her. But you know, at least she got the teacher thinking. I don't think she converted him. But nevertheless, it was this constant struggle. But she had the fortitude to do it. How many kids would say, oh, I better not say anything, grades. Parents are saying, keep your mouth shut, grades. But here we've got two great Christian witnesses. And part of that's because of what happens in the home. So let's pause now. Father Shear, I see, is here for confessions. So we'll start back at 11 AM, OK? So we'll have more time for prayer confession. But ask yourself, how well do you know your faith? That you can be a witness. And think about, is there an issue this Lent that I really need to look at and prepare a defense, just like Edmund Campion did? Edmund Campion laid out the reasons why we believe.
So ask yourself, do I need to do that? Is there that one issue that I'm always being harangued about that I need to have a defense? We'll stop there. Okay. Great. Thank you, Father. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.